Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Houston Astros get back on track. With a convincing 6-1 to win last night against the Washington Nationals. They're back at home. Stroh slug four home runs and Hunter Brown was pretty good. I'd say he's pretty good. Seven scoreless innings for a 6-1 victory. And Martin Maldonado got himself a home run. You know it's going to be a good night for the Strohs when their non-hitting catcher is slugging home runs. Good morning. Welcome to RP3 and Company. I'm your host, the big, bald, and beautiful one, Raymond Parch III, better known as RP3. Of course, I'm joined inside the EFCO Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette by the producer extraordinaire, Dawson Iserlo. We've got a good show lined up for you today. Only two guests on the back end of the show, hour number three. Kevin Price from PGATour.com will join us to help us preview the U.S. Open, which tees off tomorrow in Los Angeles, Beverly Hills to be exact, on a course that is already getting a reputation for crushing souls with the way it's designed for this Open. We'll talk about that as well as the apparent health scare for the PGA Tour Commissioner Monahan. We had that announcement last night as well. We'll talk about that with Kevin Price of PGATour.com. That'll be at 8 o'clock. At 8.30, LSU baseball legend, most outstanding player at the College World Series, college and Louisiana Sports Hall of Famer, and now SEC Network analyst Todd Walker will be joining us to talk about those Tigers as well as preview the College World Series which begins on Friday afternoon in Omaha. So those are the two guests we got lined up for you today. Of course, we'll touch on a flurry of different topics. We'll even, just for you, Mr. Green, squeeze in some Stanley Cup Finals talk. Maybe. Eh. If things go sideways, possibly. Of course, we want to hear from you. Game hotline is open. 337 706 0111, that's 337-706-0111. But we're going to begin with the Strohs. They had lost six of their last ten. Alvarez is on the IL. Still don't know when they're going to be fully healthy. Yet, they came back home. Remember, they had played 17 straight days with the ball game. Finally got a day off on Monday and then began a new series against the woeful Washington Nationals last night there at Minute Maid Park. 
Dubon, Kyle Tucker, Maldonado, and Chaz McCormick each hit solo home runs in the ballgame. Good for all four of those guys because they all needed them. And that wasn't the only significant thing to happen at the dish. Jose Abreu, who was really, really bad for a long time this season. In the last couple of weeks, it feels like he's starting to kind of turn a corner, had a couple of home runs over the weekend. Well, he had two hits in last night's game. That gives him 1,501 career hits, making him the 21st active player to reach 1,500 hits and the 12th Cuban-born player to do so. So quite the night for Jose Abreu. All that helped assist the man on the bump who had himself a heck of a night as well, Mr. Brown. Now, the man Kevin Foote calls candy, Martin Maldonado, hit a home run that extended Houston's lead to three to nothing in the seventh. By the way, that was the 100th of his career. In addition, Jose Altuve walked with one out in that same inning and scored the 1,000th run of his career on a single by Brayu with two outs. Unbelievable. All types of milestones happening in this ballgame. Who knew a random Tuesday game in June would be so significant? Abreu is in his 10th Major League Baseball season after spending 10 years playing professionally in his native Cuba. Altuve, meanwhile, is the fourth player in franchise history to score at least 1,000 runs. He joins Hall of Famers Jeff Bagwell and Craig Biggio and fellow killer B. Lance Berkman. Brown, meanwhile, bounced back in a big way with a strong start. Scattered four hits across seven scoreless innings after he had lost two in a row. So you got a strong performance by your young pitcher. Seems to be building up into possibly being one of the aces of this staff. And you got production top to bottom in your lineup. And yes, I understand that it's against the Nationals. But this is baseball. Look what the Oakland Athletics have done the last two weeks. It's baseball. So the Strohs, D'Lo, they get production from your non-favorite player, Dubon. McCormick, others. Abreu contributes. Abreu contributes. Yes. Milestone night for him. Milestone night for Jose Altuve. And Brown was very good on the bump. Martin, you, you keep saying Martin, but I think, you know, I just wanted to get that there. I've been letting it go for a while, but I thought today was appropriate because he did do something good last night, which doesn't always happen. So, um, no, Brady looks like he, he looks like a legit baseball player last last, you know, I don't know, five, six days. Um, and that's that's a step in the right direction. So, yeah, Hunter Brown, a couple rough outings, but he continues to show you that he is uh, as advertised the starting rotation. I mean, they still have the best ERA in baseball. It's not going to be. Um, all that close as in, as of right now, and close being relative because, of course, ERA numbers are pretty pretty similar there. But um, if the lineup can just be 
three quarters of what it was, you know, the past couple of years. They're going to be okay, and I think Abreu coming around is a big part of that. Uh, the MLB at bat app just really, you know, I mean, I like that app, but it just, it just, it betrayed me yesterday because it sent me a lineup that had Jordan Alvarez batting third, and I actually texted Foot and I said, "Is this real? Like, why he's he's hurt? What's the deal?" And is uh, this real? It was not real. It was a false lineup. I don't know how it got sent out, but Alvarez is obviously still on the injured list. So did, did it have Jeremy Pena in the lineup? Because he missed another day for sickness, second straight game for a undisclosed sickness. It had Altuve not in the lineup, and then Altuve was. I, I don't know. Last week they were sending us like 1975 lineups and games box scores. <laughs> I, it's true. I've been really confused, and that was it's like I, I really I thought Alvarez was like, oh, he made a miracle recovery. He just woke up feeling great. They took him off the injured list, and he's ready to go. And that wasn't true. So, well, oh well. To your point on this, we we hear from Dusty Baker yesterday. You shared this in the group text that the skipper of the Astros has no updates and has no idea. Admitted that he had no idea what the big fella Alvarez, what his progress was, and then followed that up by saying, well, I couldn't even tell you if I did know because of HIPAA violations, and then said, well, why don't you ask the trainer? (laughs) So the way the Astros handle their guys when they're they're injured or sick, it's a different level. It's a different level, D'Lo. It's... It's New England Patriots. Well, after the game, too, he said Jordan's quote, Jordan's a ways off, according to Chandler Rome, who we had on footnotes yesterday. Oh, um, gross. He tweeted that late last night, so it sounds like it got worse. But then again, what does it really mean? Because we don't know what any of it means when they speak about injuries. But they won last night. They're Let's the Patriots see. when it comes to the 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 health in maybe how how they, they've been this way for years. They're very cagey. They don't reveal the, the information. They haven't for years. It's always a mystery on when guys are coming back. Do we know when Michael Brantley Jr. is going to come back? Because we heard reports in the last week that he was practicing again, right? He's warming up, doing um, these things. No, I'm more concerned with, is he really junior? I never heard that before. Oh, he is. How about that? Michael Charles Brantley Jr. Oh, see, you wanted to correct me. No, it wasn't a correction. It's just I just didn't know. I just Some people put it on the jersey. Some people don't. Lance McCullers went through that phase where he kind of had it, then he didn't. But he's still junior. It doesn't mean he's not. Some people call him Maldonado. Martin. Others called him Martin. I call him Martin. You call him Martin. I don't understand. Oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, Look, despite the the weirdness and and look – we talked about this. The, oh, the, to answer the, your question, no, I don't know when he's coming back. Well, we don't know about Michael Brantley Jr. Have we received the update about Lance McCullers Jr., speaking of? Weren't we supposed to get one early this week about he was going to they were going to reevaluate? Yeah, and, we'll see. It doesn't sound great there. No, um, no. And so. again, Chandler Rome on footnotes yesterday did not express optimism. Really, <laughs> I mean, he kind of sounded like, you know, again. McCullers may be done. Yeah, and it's not like he knows he, – and he said he doesn't know anything more than we do in it. It's just a general feeling, kind of the way we feel. Like, at, at this point, why would you have any confidence that he is coming back? I mean, again, he has to ramp – and his point, which we've kind of we've already kind of outlined it, like even if he is to make progress, he's got to, you know, clear the, the actual medical hurdles, get cleared to throw again, then ramp up the throwing program. Like, you're looking at a month and a half even once everything is in line, and right now it's not. So, I mean, you can't even think – 
that wipes out all of June and July, like already. Yes. You know what I mean? So you're now thinking August at best, and then I, you know, are you bringing a guy back in September with the idea mm. of making meaningful starts down the stretch or in the postseason? I don't know. So yeah, it, I mean, but by that time he may not even have enough time to even get ramped up to be placed on the postseason roster. So right, no, it's 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 not good regarding McCullough. Abreu, but again, um, no, it doesn't feel like you need him all that much right now. Um, sorry, Urquidy though. I listened to that interview, and Chandler seemed to be optimistic that they felt like they were going to get Urquidy right after the All-Star break. Yeah. I, the All-Star break's like a mythical time, right? That's when everything's going to happen for every team. Like, yeah, oh, when's that going to – well, ask us at the All-Star break. That's when we figured it the out. The All-Star break is also when the Piper takes a vacation. Yeah, I guess so. Right? He t- takes a little it's bit a of a break. season. Because so. he, does, he doesn't need to be paid. <laughs> but the, the lineup, look. Dubon gets him uh, a solo home run. Altuve gets a hit, but he gets on base twice because he drew two walks. Bregman gets two hits. Abreu got the two hits and also drew a walk, so I love the plate discipline there. Jake Myers didn't get a hit, but he drew two walks as well. So, look, if this Astros lineup, and this was without the big fella last night and without Jeremy Pena, so no Alvarez, no Jeremy Pena, and no Michael Brantley Jr., and yet they were still able to get themselves nine hits, six runs, and they drew seven walks. That's winning baseball all day long, D'Lo. All day long. So they're finding ways, even when some of their guys are out, to get wins. And once again, Hunter Brown, seven innings, four hits, no runs, only walked three, struck out four through 99 pitches. That's a great little bounce back outing back home as well. So, Astros, they get the win, 6-1. to one. Of course, they'll be back in action tonight against those same Nationals. First pitch, 7-10. Pre-game, that's Astro launch, will begin at 6-40, and you can listen to it all live right here on the game. You're home for Houston Astros baseball in southwest Louisiana. We got to take a timeout, unfortunately. When we return, though, we're going to talk about the Oakland Athletics because I loved the scene that we got to see last night in Oakland. The fans decided to do a different type of protest. We'll talk about that next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Go subscribe to The Game's YouTube channel, At The Game Louisiana. That way you can check out the latest original videos and more shenanigans from The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. What a great scene in Oakland last night on the day that the Nevada Senate voted to approve 380 million dollars in public money to build a Las Vegas Major League Baseball ballpark for the athletics fans in Oakland held their reverse boycott now remember for most of the season due to how the owner has treated the stadium and the fan base and the team in general Oakland A's fans have had enough, and they're like, okay, well, if you want to move, 
then we're not even going to come to your games. Have fun drawing less than 2,000 people. And it's obviously been a tense situation in Oakland because the Athletics are their last pro team. Everyone else has left. The Raiders left for Las Vegas. Golden State left to go across the other side of the bay and play in San Francisco. The A's are the only thing they have left. So fans decided, okay, we're going to have a party. 27,759 fans in attendance for the reverse boycott. The largest home crowd of the season, more than triple the team's home average, which is around 8,500. Three hours before the game, ESPN reported that they were, fans could get their hands on 7,000 green cell t-shirts provided by a $39,000 donation from the local community and produced by Oakland Lish, a local clothing company. There was taco trucks, a DJ, tables. Fans were allowed to make their own anti-Fisher signs. <laughs> of course, Fisher is the owner of the Oakland Athletics. And here's the thing about this is that Oakland has proud history. Reggie Jackson, Raleigh Fingers, Catfish Hunter in the 70s when they went to the World Series all the time and won World Series. Then in the late 80s, early 90s, McGuire, Canseco, Dennis Eckersley, Dave Stewart. They had great teams then. And then the Moneyball era, when ownership has changed hands and then owner is like, I don't want to spend money, Billy Bean, figure it out. Of course, he would later be portrayed by Brad Pitt in a very good movie. And they were a competitive team. Didn't get to the World Series, could never get over the hump, but they were kind of at the forefront of using analytics in baseball. So they have proud history. They have a really good fan base. This is the thing that always perplexes me about these teams leaving Oakland. Because that area is a good sports area. <laughs> It just is. Oakland is a good sports town. It supported the Raiders. It supported the Warriors. And it supported the Athletics. That's a good sports town. It's a blue-collar, bring-your-lunch-pail-to-work type of community. And they've had great success with all of those teams, and yet those franchises just want to leave Oakland. Now, part of it is that they struggled to raise the money to do the improvements needed to keeping up with the Joneses when it comes to venues and modern sports. I get that. But it's a good sports town, and it deserves to have a team. And the way the A's, the ownership has treated that community sucks, plain and simple. So seeing last night, 28,000 Oakland Athletic fans coming out to support their team, I loved it. And chanting, sell the team, <laughs> which, which, which I absolutely loved. And, and here's the thing, if I'm Nevada in this great idea here, because they had to go vote on this. 
Because even Nevada lawmakers were like, hey, we're not so sure about we want to have the A's relocate here. Now, they did a shrewd move yesterday, the A's did, because they donated all ticket revenue from the game to a a local food bank and the Oakland Public Education Fund. Because one of the sticking points for Nevada lawmakers was the team's lack of commitment to the local community. Because here's the other thing. Those teams, Raiders, Warriors, but more specifically, the Oakland Athletics, have been supported by the local community when the ownership doesn't care about the local community. And it, I'm not just talking about rising ticket prices, which they did the last this, this year. No, I'm talking about donating to local charities. That's, lo- that's been a long sticking point in Oakland that the A's don't care about the community that props them up. <laughs> so, you know, uh, many people thought their approach to community involvement was inadequate. And the bill in Nevada yesterday, by the way, was only passed after it was amended, forcing the team to commit more than a $1.5 million to the community once the ballpark is completed. That's the only way some people signed off on it. Now the Oakland mayor is taking the High road here. Shang Tao says, from this point on, I'm rooting for the Oakland A fans. If anybody doubted their passion, so forth and so forth. He says, Las Vegas deserves a team, an expansion team, but the A's must stay in Oakland. And we're going to continue to work to keep that. But I I, I don't see... I don't see how it's going to happen. And, and, and once again, this is an incident of someone viewing their baseball team as just a money-making venture, and that's it. Fisher is the billionaire heir to the Gap fortune, by the way. That's who owns the A's. So you would think would have money to invest in his team, but my man says, nah, bro, I ain't doing that. So he wants to build a $1.2 billion stadium on the Las Vegas Strip. Why not build a new coliseum and a new stadium in Oakland? Why not do that? It's just, I don't know, man. It's disheartening because, once again, an owner who has gutted his team, traded away his best players for pennies on the dollar, is not allow Billy Bean. By the way, where's Billy Bean at? Is he the back on the built card? Because I haven't seen him. Because he hasn't been allowed to do anything last year and this year. You don't invest in your team. You don't invest in your local community. You don't do this. And he's going to get rewarded by having somebody else help foot the bill for a massive new shiny ballpark in another state. It just sucks, man. I'm just being real. I'm not trying to be harsh this morning. I'm not trying to harsh your mellow. But this isn't good. You want to put a team in Vegas? Great. Put a team in Vegas. But Oakland deserves better, D'Lo. They just do. They deserve better. Yeah, it's tough. And, um, 
I, I yeah, the, the resolution here, I don't I don't know if any of this is going to really change anything. It sounds like it's it's moving forward, but it, it sounded a lot like it was moving forward last month and then things happened. So I guess we'll wait and see. But uh, you, you typically don't see these types of things end up changing anything. But uh, no, it's unfortunate. And yeah, part of the reason that the fan base has been, um, you know, not in attendance so often is because of how horrible the stadium's been for a long time. I mean, that and that's, again, reflective of. The amount of investment and like the, you know, it was the movie itself, Moneyball, while a, you know, a a somewhat dramatized portrayal expresses the idea that the A's were right there ready to win and they wouldn't spend the money to put themselves over the top. And that's why Moneyball came about, because they wouldn't spend. And now, yeah, the idea of then going and spending all of the money in some other city, as opposed to just trying to invest in what you had, pretty frustrating, I'm sure, for all the people over there. But correct. If if. You're, you're, you're willing to spend the money because you really don't want the team to be in Oakland. That's what that that that's what it's all about. And if you were committed to the city of Oakland and you were committed to winning baseball and just not taking the money from the revenue sharing, which allows these owners in multiple cities to treat their ballparks and treat their fan bases like garbage, we wouldn't have this issue, by the way, because then you wouldn't be making a profit. See, that, that's the part of this, Dawson, that allows these owners to do this because they make a profit because of the revenue sharing even without having to invest into their franchise. And Major League Baseball has allowed this to happen. And some of the bigger teams, like the Yankees, like the Dodgers, even the Astros and others that are investing in their teams go, why is this being allowed? But it's being allowed. Oh, Rod Menford, he's just letting it happen. It's business as usual. So these jokers, these people who do not care about the sport, who do not care about baseball, who do not care about their local fans, who do not care about anything but making money. And and here's the thing. Oakland won 97 games in 2019, D-Lo. 97 with their roster restrictions and their payroll restrictions. And then they made the postseason again in 2020. But then Fisher comes in and says, let's strip the team of all of his young stars. By the way, my Atlanta Braves say thank you because Olsen's been good this year. Reducing the payroll to the lowest in baseball. And then they turned around and raised ticket prices and have done nothing to improve the fan experience. And now... They want someone else to help foot the bill. It's amazing. This is what's wrong with baseball, by the way. This right here. The athletic situation is exactly what's wrong with Major League Baseball. There's no scenario why this should be allowed to happen. But yet here it is. But shout out to the fans. They came out and they had a party in their reverse boycott yesterday at the Oakland Coliseum. We got to take a timeout. When we return here on RP3 and Company, oh, we're going to stick to baseball, but it's going to be LSU. They're gearing up for the College World Series, their 19th trip to Omaha. We'll hear from Jay Johnson next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. 
Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Yeah, not a surprise at all. You know, when you look at the bracket, when it comes out, you obviously get focused on the game in front of you. And then you kind of look to that that first game, what it might be. And, I mean, that's basically who I anticipated that we would play. Uh, great team, great talent. Uh, enjoy competing against them. And it um, should be a great, great night for college baseball. I'm just curious. Everyone seems to love Scott Barry. You, you have any interaction yeah. and stuff with him? Yeah, very, big time respect, um, you know, to – uh, be a mid-major coach at, a, at a programs that were successful. I think I kind of uh, appreciate the challenges, and there's a few of them like Southern Miss that have kind of ascended to their own level in that regard, and that takes great coaching, great recruiting, great leadership, great culture. Uh, the guy's a winner, and um, you know, it's somebody that I, I admire a lot. That's LSU skipper Jay Johnson talking about his thoughts on the bracket for the College World Series facing off against Tennessee out of the SEC, a team they took two of three from this year, but had lost all three games the previous season, as well as getting his thoughts on the retirement of Scott Berry, the longtime Southern Miss baseball coach, and the team that eliminated the Tigers last year in the regional round over in Hattiesburg. LSU will face Tennessee in their opening game of the College World Series. That will be Saturday night. Tigers, Vols, it should be a good one. Oh, man, it's a tough task. And for LSU, the bracket could be D'Lo, Tennessee, and then Wake Forest. That's how they could start off the College World Series. That's a bit of a tall task. The bracket is brutal this year. We've already talked about that, and we'll do more previews as the week progresses as we get closer to the start of the College World Series on Friday. But tall task for uh, LSU right out the gate. But everyone's got tall tasks. I mean, that's Correct. that's where you're at in the season, right? Uh, it's it's same kind of with the Elite Eight games when you get to that point in basketball. But um, no, and, and I think the emphasis on could be, I, I think a lot of people are talking about LSU Wake Forest and like, let's get there first. I, that would be what, what, what I would say to that. Uh, you got to beat Tennessee and Wake Forest has to win their game. They, you know, they have to beat a very good Stanford team that just, you know, seemingly won on a miracle. And we've talked about that emotional wins like that. Uh, how about how Washington softball responded after a miracle win against mm. McNeese? They look pretty good. So sometimes and Stanford's teams, making its third straight t- trip to yeah, the college Yeah, they expected to yeah. be here. It's not a uh, Cinderella run for that group, and um, they were the team that was favored within that, you know, super regional as at least seed wise. Although a lot of people thought Texas had a good chance, but um, but either way, LSU's going to face Tennessee for sure, and then they're going to face Wake Forest or Stanford on Monday. Yeah, the funny thing, I mean, like, that is, like depth-wise and, and quality of your ho- overall season put into perspective, Tennessee's the clear weakest team in the bracket on the on that side. Um, but still, that doesn't really mean much at this point because you just won a regional, went through a number one seed in a regional, went through a number one seed in a super. Uh, they feel kind of dangerous, too. Yeah, and they've got some guys in the back end. They always underachieved their talent a little bit this year because we know what they are capable of last season. I would agree with that. Now... The key for this team, when we've been talking about it for majority of the season, the lineup is filthy for LSU. It's there. They have the best pitcher in the country. By the way, they he should be thrown on Saturday. Let's not overthink this. 
you got to win. Like, Which is the first game, by the way, just the, for those to clarify. Right, the first game for LSU. First games are on Friday. The first game for LSU will be on Saturday. Don't overthink it. You, you throw skeins, right? Because let's say you try to save them, uh, okay, but what if you lose? Now, now you're not, your backup is yeah, against the ball. You're not saving. And again, no. if you the earlier you throw them, the earlier you can throw them again because these this is a tournament that can last two and a half weeks. You could possibly utilize him three times. Yeah, if it works out. If it works out, if you put together a good run. So, yeah, you go ahead and throw Paul against, against Tennessee. But the pitching has been the question mark. Look, you get Skeens, you got Ty Floyd. That's a nice one-two punch. But behind that, it was a struggle for stretches of the season in particular when they dipped a little bit but since the SEC tournament it seems like Jay has figured out the guys that he trusts we've talked about it on yesterday's show Gavin Gidry the freshman out of Barb High School he trust him all day long that kid's got that kid is ready to roll spotlight's not too big for him he trusts Cooper Thatcher Hurd has kind of turned a corner a little bit he trusts Ackenhausen so They've been figuring, been able to figure it out pitching-wise by guys stepping up and taking advantage of the opportunity in the SEC tournament, in the NCAA regional, and in the Super Regional. And Jay Johnson talked about the fact that, you know what? He's got a ton of arms that he and his staff trust. Yeah, I think there's a huge benefit of that, especially when you go through a long season. When you go through the intensity of the season uh, to the SEC schedule, um, you look back at our SEC opponents and how they finished the year, um, it kind of brings to light like how difficult that stretch of baseball was. Um, so they got taxed, you know what I mean? And we, we played four games a week every week and never had a losing week the entire season. And to do that, you need guys to execute. And against that schedule, that's, uh, that's tough. So getting a few guys a breather, I, th- I would expect some really good performances out of those guys, you know, come this week. Even like a guy like Thatcher who went high pitch count two weeks in a row, like it might be the best thing that, that ever happened, you know, for him to to get a breath this, this last weekend. They trust the guys. We talked about Coleman hasn't really been seen in the month of June at all. But Jay has made it a point to mention him, Dawson, as if they had what-if scenarios, he'd be the guy that would start, right? We heard that during the regional. If they were going to have to do a winner-take-all game, it didn't come to be, so they need, didn't need to use him. And he mentioned again during the Super, so Coleman could be that guy that could be that third starter for this team, but I wouldn't be surprised if you see a combination of like Coleman, Thatcher, Hurd, and Cooper out there you know, kind of doing a Johnny Holstaff in one of these games, or at least maybe even two of these games. Well, and again, I think we get used to the fact, the format of regional supers and how pitching lines up. But like, if if things go the way they're supposed to, and we could we could do a deep dive, it would take uh, you know to go back and look at the other Omaha runs that the Tigers or other teams have had. If you make a run all the way, like it's great to think, okay, you're going to get eight innings from Skeens in night one with one inning out of from Gidry, and then you're going to get seven from Floyd with two from yeah, Cooper. Yeah, but you can't do that. Like if you go the distance in this tournament the way it is and the way things are going to work with the number of games and the number of elite teams you have to play, you're going to need essentially every healthy arm on your roster to throw a couple innings. Correct. And that includes Coleman, and that probably includes – I mean, it might include Christian Little. It might include other guys. Like Blake you're going money. to need yep. – Everyone, if they're going to make a run that they want to like, make, yeah, that's it's just going to have to include to, everyone all the way to the title game, and, and you know, especially if you lose a game along the way, you start to have to add innings there. Like it just doesn't work out the way you'd want it to 
um, you know, where you can go one, two, three. And, and you, keep you, you mentioned it. it earlier about, look, it, it, this is the final eight teams here. This is the best of the best. And we talk about how vaunted the lineup is for LSU. It's the best lineup in college baseball. But they're going to face the best of the best in home Omaha because everyone is going to have an opportunity to be able to throw their best arms and their quality pitching. And Jay talked about that yesterday when he met with the media about just how harder it is for teams when you get to the College World Series to be able to hit consistently because of all the good pitching you're going to face. You know, I, I think it's bigger. And I think, um, you know, what is a hitter's ballpark? I think maybe it's it's a little bit relative to what Rosenblatt used to be like, which was a launching pad. So um, I think it's evolved into more fair recently. And, um, you know, winning baseball is winning baseball. And then there's just creating an awareness of, of some things that might be unique about it. And so uh, we'll spend some time, you know, doing that and, and make sure we're plugged in and dialed into what we need to do. I think the thing that gets lost of it not being a hitter's ballpark either is if you're in Omaha, you have great pitching, mm-hmm. as we do, as all these other teams do. So it's just flat out harder to score when you're facing the opponents that are, are usually there. He's not wrong. And look, for every team that made it, all eight teams, it's going to be an immense challenge because not only are you going to be facing off to some of the best programs in the country, it's a grind for like two weeks and then to win a national title you have to cap it off by playing two winning two out of three (laughs) so you know you go through the elimination portion and then there's a championship series to top it all off so it is immensely difficult to win the national title in baseball for sure we'll talk more about this game obviously with Todd Walker the LSU legend the former most outstanding player at the College World Series when he joins us at 8.30 today to help preview the College World Series. Right now, though, we got to take a timeout. When we return, we'll unveil the foodie poll question of the week, which is always our poll question of the day on Wednesdays, and get to some of your early comments. That's all next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 is known across Acadiana as a master of the English language. You look at all the guys that they got. Clinton Anukoraru. Oof. And I don't know how to pronounce this young man's name. TJ Falola. More like a master of broken English, that is. They also added an inside linebacker, Casey Wasawi. These names are killing me, man. I even practiced last night. Me fail English? That's impossible. Now back to that silky smooth delivery of RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Foodie poll question of the week is all about Father's Day, which will be, of course, on Sunday. It's all about what do you prefer? What's your favorite Father's Day meal? Is it a steak dinner? Is it barbecue? Is it some sort of seafood? Fried, boiled, doesn't matter. Or is it other? What's your go-to 
I'm already anticipating some pushback uh, in the comments about a steak dinner and barbecue being too close together. But I think we just need to make a clear separation here, which it should be, in my opinion, you know, pretty apparent. But like we're talking steak, potatoes, vegetables, you know, your classic steak dinner versus like, you know, the, the classic cookout barbecue with, with your barbecue chicken and your barbecue ribs and your, and your sausage and things of that nature. Just wanted to make that clarification. Trying to anticipate some of the issues we may face later in the show. Um, I, I don't know why someone would be confused by that. No, I'm, I just, every time we post a poll question specifically <laughs> with food, I get, we get pushed back here on, on the answer choices uh, and the questions and what it could have been. And if we've asked a question like that seven years ago, because we can't repeat them. So I just wanted to just get ahead of the game. Fair. That's fair. That's fair. Here we go. Let's get to some early results. What is your favorite father's day meal? 52% of you say steak dinner, 30% say barbecue. 14% say other, 4% say seafood, boiled or fried. Ralph says, honestly, it really doesn't matter. As long as I am able to be with my family, it could be a bologna sandwich as far as I'm concerned. So proud of my two kids and four, soon to be five grandkids. Happy Father's Day. Shout out to Ralph. Wow. See, there you go. The opposite of there pushback. Just a great answer. That's a great answer. Hart says, my dad has lived overseas for the past seven years and just recently moved back home. Literally could have a $1 burger with him, and we'd both be content. Just glad to have him back. Look at these how comments. About the, how about the? That's what we – just great attitudes and energy and just sentimental thank yous and you know gratitude Damn. shown on Wednesday morning. There we go. Ton says, give me a good steak with a baked potato and some grilled squash, and I'm set. John Paul says, go to my Father's Day, a big Mexican meal, fajitas with a side of tacos and a nice amber ale. Yeah, there we go. And Doug, nice porterhouse with sweet tater fries and asparagus. Hashtag elbow room. And here now, I feel bad because I said we were going to get, you know, people were going to, but everybody's giving great answers and everybody's got good attitudes today. So maybe I'm the one who needs to kind of reevaluate the way I'm thinking of things. Um, so I'll, I'll try to do better. You got something special planned for your pop? Uh, well, yeah, actually going to try and, well, he doesn't know yet. I was going to ask him because I will be out of town on Sunday itself. I'll be driving back, but, um, so I'm going to try and take him either, uh, maybe, well, you know, timing's not going to work well, so it'll probably have to be next week. But yeah, I did have plans for that. And then plans kind of got moved around. There you go. There you go. So, uh, Iceman, AKA Papa Iserlo, you will have to wait for your special day because your son's going out of town. <laughs> okay, you say it like that. It, it I'm just was, playing. I'm just playing. You know, no, you know, D Lo's going to take yeah, care of his The plan is is in works. It's just now the date. Now that I'm thinking of the logistics of it, the date's going to have to be rearranged. There it is. Hour number one is in the books. Hour number two coming up right here on the game. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Hour number two of RP3 and Company has arrived. Welcome back to the show as we broadcast live from the FCO Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette. FCO Development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction. Once again, no guests this hour. 
That's right. First two hours of today's RP3 and Company guest free because we got two really good ones in the final hour for you. Kevin Price from PGATour.com will join us to help us preview the U.S. Open, which will tee off tomorrow there at the Los Angeles Country Club. And then we'll have Todd Walker, LSU baseball legend, the man, in my opinion, who is the best LSU baseball player of all time. We'll see what Dylan Cruz can do in Omaha. He'll join us to talk about the Tigers as well as preview the College World Series, which begins on Friday. First game, TCU versus Oral Roberts in the afternoon. So that's what we got coming up next hour with our two guests. This hour, we're going to talk New Orleans Saints minicamp. Hear from Derek Carr, the new quarterback. We'll also take a deep dive into the field and the conditions at the course for the U.S. Open. D'Lo and I will do that this hour as well. And of course, we'll take your phone calls. Game hotline's open. I know Jamie's just can't wait to pick up the phone to talk about the Las Vegas Knights winning the Stanley Cup by a baseball score of 9-3 to last night over the Florida Panthers. Yes, that's the Golden Knights. My apologies. My um, apologies. It's certain, isn't it UCF that used to be the gold, but now they don't want, they're just the Knights, and then it's like a it's big confusing. deal. But so they gave, I guess they gave their gold to Vegas, <laughs> although UCF is still gold in color. There it is. But also, I think we're all good with that. I think, um, by the way, <laughs> Knights, I think Knights is a great math. You know what? I want to book it down. I, I didn't ask you about this, but at some point in July when things are really slow as far as the sports calendar, okay. um, we need to do greatest mascots, um, logos, jerseys. We need to kind of create – you know, Footnotes has a summer project. I think we need to get going on some of those things as well, but I'd like to do them on things that don't impact on-field play, although maybe they do because look good, feel good, play good. That's always a thing. Um, and I'll tell you this, an early leader in the clubhouse, and I know uh, my dad agrees here, the New Orleans Voodoo had one of the best logos in the history of all sports things ever created and it's a shame that they no longer exist so maybe the voodoo will come back in the new version of the arena league maybe so um i I would doubt it but maybe so there we go and if if not then i wish they would sell all the trademarks and stuff to somebody who could use it although i don't know you know i'm not a legal (laughs) expert but i know that was an issue back in the day when they came back and then but you know outstanding uniforms logos colors everything involved with that You're, you're talking to someone who proudly attended a New Orleans voodoo game. Um, you're talking to someone who was a season ticket holder. Oh, there it is. Yeah. I've got the autographed ball from one year because you used to go, you know, that was the thing. You just went on the field after the game. Everybody was kind of letting you go around, toss the ball around. So I had a uh, a football that had one side was the Arena Football League, you know, kind of game ball, and the other side was for autographs. And I had basically, I have almost the whole team from that year. That was a fun year. Oh. Steve Belisari, the left-handed slinging oh. quarterback. I still have the jersey, by the way. Oh, can you bring that to the studio uh, one day? Yes. I, I will try and put my hands on it yes. and locate it. I had it up in the uh, – that was always fun. I had When I was in the dorms at UL, I had a, we had all our jerseys up on the wall. We had a lot between me and my roommate. And uh, I brought that one in one day, and everybody was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What, what, is, what is that one there? And it's I a said, game changer. You don't know about Steve Bell. Sorry, do you? <laughs> lefty that could sling it back in the day, I'll tell you. The lefty that could sling it. Oh, man. I'm here for the voodoo stuff. I used to have one of the boomsticks. For many years, even after it deflated, I still kept it as a decor item. It's somewhere, packed away somewhere in all of my stuff. Voodoo, I had a good time. I had no, a good time it, with the Voodoo I mean, games. We liked it enough to where we bought season ticket. Like, we literally, 
I mean, we loved it. It was awesome. Now they were never, and they had a couple of years that were looking promising. They were never that great, but um, and, then, and then Katrina happened, and yeah. no, and afterwards, this is all afterwards. This is all after. Oh, Katrina you went afterwards? Yeah, 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 yeah. When they came back, and um, that's when we got we you know went to the. But anyway, the, the whole league was fun. That's why I was saying, and it's you know probably the. I, I haven't fact checked this. It's probably the most successful spinoff football league. You know, longest run, biggest. I mean, it got up to what twenty something teams at one point. Um, and then you had Arena League Football Two or the the minor league system. They had one in Shreveport. Yeah, no, it was it was Shreveport a big deal Battle for Battle Wings, if I remember right. I, that sounds right. Yeah. Um, the Georgia Force were always a problem in the Voodoo's division. Just could oh, never geez. beat those guys. Oh, anyway, it, there you go. Back in the day, I know that, that's what everybody was listening for. So <laughs> everyone was hoping for some New Orleans Voodoo old school Arena Football League talk, but that's what we deliver here at RP3 and Company. Astros, they delivered. After a long, long, tiresome road trip, having dropped six of their last ten games and having to play 17 straight days with a game, they got a day off on Monday. Back home in Minute Maid. No yard on Alvarez. The big fella out. Reports are not promising that his stint on the IL will only last ten days. (sighs) Obliques are weird. Because, you know, you need a healthy oblique to be able to hit for power. And last time I checked, hold on, I'm looking at my research now. Hold on. Uh, Alvarez is a power hitter. So, yeah, it may be a longer stay on the IL than 10 days. And this would continue the trend of expected short stints on the injured list for the Astros players that end up being far longer than expected. Altuve was held out longer than we thought he was going to. Michael Brantley Jr. still has yet to return. Lance McCullers Jr. has yet to return. Not optimal. And now the big fella, Alvarez, is on the IL. But even without Alvarez and Jeremy Pena missing his second straight game due to some undisclosed sickness, Astros are able to slug four home runs in the ball game as Hunter Brown throws seven scoreless innings to lead the Strohs to a 6-1 victory over the Washington Nationals. Dubon, Tucker, Maldonado, and McCormick all hit home run blast in the game, and there were plenty of milestones. Jose Abreu, who looks like maybe, hold up, the big free agent acquisition this offseason. The slugger from the Chicago White Sox maybe has started to turn a corner a little bit. He had two hits to give him 1,501 career hits, making him the 21st 21st active player to reach 1,500 hits and the 12th Cuban-born player to do so. Maldonado hit his 100th home run of his career. That's all that cat does. He doesn't do anything else. He's a great catcher who every 14 days hits a home run. (laughs) And then goes for four. is maybe generous there. I just had a random thought, though, about Major League Baseball. And, um, you know, I figure now's a good time to to bring it up. You wanted to bring up Jose Altuve scoring the 1,000th run of his career? No. single by Abreu with two outs in the ballgame? No, I thought we kind of covered it. Okay, sorry. No, I didn't know if we – if you have more on that, please let me know. Those milestones are always fun, though. I, and, I mean, it is a, you know, obviously the run itself doesn't mean a whole lot, right? But, like, 
it's a chance to sit back and think about the career that the guys had, right? And I mean, I mean, at this a, a point, a guy Kevin Foote is always frustrated by, who may go down as the the, yeah. the greatest Houston Astro player. Yeah, maybe next time, guys who are undrafted <laughs> free agents who show up to tryout camps, make the roster, rise up the ranks, bring a franchise's first world title, back it up with a second. Maybe that guy should just be better for Kevin. And 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 a league MVP. Yeah, and also be five foot six and always doubted and yeah, yeah, that <laughs> that guy's terrible. That um, guy, anyway, guy's awful. Guys, he's out there picking flowers. I had this thought because you know the Major League Baseball draft now it's it shifted around. It, in in the olden days, oh the olden days, like two years ago, the olden days, uh, the draft would have been like next week probably, uh, or no, it would have been this week, right? It would, it would have been it, before, between Omaha and the Supers usually. Yeah, it would be held during the week as you prepared for Omaha. So now it's moved back, which I think makes a lot more sense. And and honestly, for an LSU perspective, think about how much better that is that Paul Skeens and Dylan Cruz and those guys. Don't have to deal with it, you know, and you call it a distraction. Obviously, it's one of the greatest days in those guys' lives. But trying to go pitch in Omaha, and oh, by the way, you're trying to deal with contract negotiations and figuring out this new city you're about to live in because you're about to be a Major League Baseball player, I think it's better for everybody that it's afterwards. But anyway, in a lot of years, the number one or two prospects are high school players because of the way, you know, baseball is, and you can do that as a high school player, and you're projecting out for a long time. But this year... Two of the top three or four prospects, of course, are Paul Skeens and Dylan Cruz, who are guys who played in college and played for three to four years, and I would say are like very major league ready players or close to it, especially Skeens. Now, Cruz, you know, hitters always have to spend time in the minor leagues. It's just that kind of acclimation period. But the biggest thing is adjusting to how to hit sliders and curveballs when you get to double A levels. You yeah, and, and you know, struggle with. and there's you know just playing. Getting used to, I think a lot of times major league hitters too have to kind of get used to the idea of, of of the grind of a minor league, major league schedule too. But but anyway, the point being there is that those guys would I would assume have a chance to contribute like pretty soon, like sooner than most. And and a guy like Dylan Cruz or Paul Skeens, if if Pittsburgh, who has the number one pick, they're in first place right now. Like, isn't that an interesting thought? And and I just kind of thought of it. And maybe it's not time to have that conversation. I'm sure we'll be able to talk about that after Omaha, but. About the idea of one of those guys going to a team like Pittsburgh, because usually you think of the worst teams in the league mm. having the first pick, but the Pirates are having a solid year. Those guys could contribute in October, right? If that's if, and I know we're a long way away from something like that, but that was just a thought I had um, because it's 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 a break from you know you would assume if you just had to guess you'd probably guess oh Oakland probably is the first pick of that. No, it's not. It's the Pirates and and they're in first place. So uh, something to think about as this goes on the next month or so. Yeah, because we believe that it's either going to be Skeens or Cruz, or it could be the the guy from Florida. The yeah, other Caglianon. The thank you Caglione. for that. I, I, I struggle with that one, too. So I, I, I just call them tags because we're on a first name basis um, or last name basis. He, it's those, a tag. It's a C. Caglione. It's a C? Yeah, I, th- yeah, I, yeah. I thought I heard T there. Sorry, you, didn't have my, you don't have my headphones adjusted properly, obviously. I'm just messing. He's trying to change the volume. <laughs> <laughs> uh, those are your three Golden Spike Golden Spikes finalists. Is the kid from Florida draft eligible? Yes, he is. Wow. So, yeah, well, that's some uh, Skeens. Look, this, this is not a knock on Dylan Cruz by any stretch of the imagination, but um, if you can get a dominant pitcher, I, I I know Major League Baseball teams kind of value pitchers probably more so. Than a hitter, I could be wrong there, but it feels like Skeens will probably be the number one overall guy. If I had to, if I had to guess, but you never do know. You never do know. But that is an interesting thought. 
at go ahead. It's I'm actually maybe mi- mixing up Caglianone. Caglianone is the one who's um, you know, el- is the Golden Spikes finalist. But Wyatt Langford's their guy who's their top prospect draft eligible guy who's number oh, three behind Cruz and Skeens. There we go. So where where do they have uh, Cags as I like to call him? Um, he's not on here, so I'm wondering if maybe Uh-oh. he's not draft eligible. I might have had that wrong. Oh no, can't have that. Right, that would be unfortunate. Yeah, no, he is. Uh, he's going to be back. That's scary for the SEC. He's only a sophomore. You know who else is going to be back in the SEC next year? Tommy Tanks. Sure is. He's not draft eligible yet. Nope. He was a freshman at NC State, which is just further crazy the year he put <laughs> together last year and then falling into this year. I, I loved after the Super Regional when Skip Bertman comes and finds him on the field and says, What's up, Tanks? Can you imagine? I would, guy I would think Bertman. it was cool if Skip Bertman called me Tanks, yes. I would <laughs> I would, I, that. That's probably a pretty cool moment. Probably a very cool moment. We do have a foodie poll question of the week, which is always our poll question of the day on Wednesdays. What's your favorite Father's Day meal, fellas? What do you like to have? When the wife or the girlfriend or the kids ask you, hey, what do you want for Father's Day? What's your go-to answer? That's how you should answer this question. of you right now say steak dinner. 39% of you say barbecue. 10% say other. Only 3% for seafood. That's it. Ton has a follow-up comment. You know, Dawson, it's a dad thing. This is the one time during the year where we aren't wrong according to our wives or embarrassing to our kids. We can afford to be and not have to split hairs over grilled steak and barbecue. There we go. L.C. Izzle. I can't even vote when the options are this stacked. That's what we like to do. We like to challenge you. We like to challenge you. I personally, I love barbecue. I love seafood. Boy, give me some boiled shrimp or fried shrimp all day long. But a good classic steakhouse dinner. Steak, baked potato, all day long. That's my go-to. That's my jam. And does my wife and daughter know this? Yes, they do. <laughs> yes, they do. So, And it actually works out pretty well for me this coming weekend, D-Lo. Because my wife's birthday is tomorrow. I will not tell you how old she is. Because uh, <laughs> you don't do these things, by the way. Just a little helpful tip to you. So we're going to celebrate her birthday probably tonight. We have dancing tomorrow. So that will interfere with our plans. And then I'm going out of town, going to Omaha for the College World Series on Friday. I won't be back until Tuesday. But what that means is that when I return, D'Lo, there won't be a mad rush at the steakhouses for Father's Day. Everyone trying to get in because it won't technically be Father's Day anymore. Score one for the big, bald, and beautiful one. See, that's, I'm right there with you. That's that's also what I had planned out. Yeah, Boom. Always. You, see, see, it's like the, it's like the, you know, some people would th- would call it cheesy to go. Why don't we celebrate Valentine's Day on the weekend after? And then you go, oh, but it happens to be sixty percent off all the Valentine's Day stuff at the store. <laughs> some people would call it cheesy or cheap. I would call it a great deal. <laughs> Unfortunately, 
What does your lady friend? No, call no. It? I was gonna say, fortunately, she's usually on board with a great deal like that. You know, oh, if the, there we if go. If the logistics work out. Now, if I'm the one who's trying to manipulate the plans in that way, then maybe that's not gonna go. But if it works out and it's easier to do it that other day, then we'll just do it that other day. There we go. There we go. Keep those votes coming on the foodie poll question of the week, which is always our poll question of the day on Wednesdays. We got to take a timeout when we return. How about a little New Orleans Saints talk? Heard from Derek Carr. Start a mini camp this week. That'll be next. Dawson loves this type of stuff, by the way. He's very excited to hear what Derek Carr had to say. That's all coming up next right here on the game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 grew up dreaming of one day playing right field for the Atlanta Braves, just like his hero, Dale Murphy. I wanted to grow up and be Dale Murphy. Little Raymond, though, wasn't quite the caliber of athlete of his childhood hero as his lone highlights as a ball player were being beamed twice in the head. That actually explains a lot. Back to more RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Southwest Louisiana's Louisiana's sports Sports station. station. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm going to do my best to get us, you know, in the right situation, make the best decision with the football. We're in a great situation here with with all the weapons that we do have. That um, we don't just have to force it to one guy. And so, uh, you know, if he has 80, awesome. You know, if he has 20, awesome. As long as we're winning, you know, uh, th- that's what we want to do. And so, um, th- sure, there's ways. As soon as he, can, I've lived this. I've lived this. I've answered these questions when we. Throw Waller the ball. Why are we only throwing to the tight end? You know, what, what about Alave? What about my, you know, what about Rasheed? And then we're going to ch- throw the ball to, you know, Alvin. He's going to have 12 catches for 150. I mean, why are we checking the ball down? Why are we? It's like, dude, bro. A decade of this, I, I'm just over it, you know. And so I'm going to make the best decisions. Whoever catches the balls, they catch the balls. Uh, I'm going to do my best. Uh, and I'm sure someone on YouTube out there will see one that I missed and think that he knows the read. So uh, I'll just do my best to get however many catches he gets, he gets them. That's new New Orleans Saints quarterback Derek Carr talking about targeting certain players and everything like that. You know, I'm like, I have enjoyed everything I've heard from him. Now, he has to back it up on the field, obviously. And as good as Carr has been at times in his career, he's also had some pretty bad moments, in particular with decision-making with where to throw the ball. So he's not a perfect quarterback. He's not Drew Brees. Let's go ahead and can we go ahead? I felt like I did this last year. So we'll go ahead and do it again this year. I'm going to start laying the groundwork now, D'Lo. June 14th. Heads up. Derek Carr is not Drew Brees. Plain and simple. Is he an improvement over Andy Dalton, Jameis Winston, Taysom Hill, Trevor Simeon, Ian Book? You betcha. Is he Drew Brees? No. But you can still win probably a lot of games with him if he plays to his potential. Once again, this is why I don't like going through the schedule and picking wins and losses because this isn't fantasy football. right? This this is real football. And a lot of times, 
you can get tricked into thinking someone is going to do something really, really good or have a great season, and then they don't. I think if healthy, if the offensive line in front of Derek Carr, which we haven't talked nearly enough about, we focused on the wide receivers and the running backs, wide receivers, running backs. Wide re- okay, how about the guys up front? Because if they're injured like they were last year, it's not going to matter who's on the outside. It's not going to matter who's in the wide receiving core. It's not gonna, who's going to matter who's in the backfield. Because if the offensive line doesn't do their job and play better than they did last year and be healthy, the offense won't be able to execute. It always starts up front. But I do like Derek Carr. I think he says all the right things. He says all the right things. And that's exactly what the Saints quarterback should be. It shouldn't be forcing the issue of targeting one guy. It's like whoever's open, go through your reads. If that guy's open, throw it to him. Done. That's how you win football games. And it's something Drew Brees did forever. Correct. Uh, the only year, the year Michael Thomas broke the record, that's because Michael Thomas was always open because he was an elite route runner who was a physical separation creator. Like it wasn't because Drew Brees wanted Michael Thomas to break a receptions record, you know? Correct. I think that gets lost sometimes. Now, um, they did feed the ball a little bit to Jimmy Graham when Jimmy was in, you know, that season and a half to two seasons where he was elite. Right. That might be because he was 6'8", physical mismatch that nobody Correct. could cover. But now, it, he didn't like blocking all that much, but yes, he, yeah, was, well, a, he was a pass-catching nightmare. You don't have to block in the end zone is probably what his logic was. But, no, I... It's 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 always been the way the Saints offense has been when it's been at its peak. Like there were year, I mean, the, the year they won the Super Bowl, they didn't have an elite wide receiver unless you want to call that Marcus Colson. Which you know, I mean, I love Marcus Colson, but he was a very very good possession receiver, not even on the balanced. level of Michael Thomas. Right? There was no forcing the issue to anyone, and I don't. I mean, we're, we're hearing some Stephon Diggs drama going on in Buffalo, right? Oof. Like I I don't think it's. It, you take a look at the history of teams, and I've kind of done this exercise before. Um, very, very few teams in the history of the league have won the title when they had big-time issues in the wide receiver room or between the quarterback and the receiver, um, drama between those those positions. It's, it's very rare, and usually even when you have ever had superstar franchise receivers who have been on Super Bowl championship teams, usually they haven't had issues that given year. Um, I think you go back to all the T.O. teams that had some issues and those teams never got it done in the end. So, I, again, I, I think that sometimes it is extremely difficult to run an offense when you're already trying to evaluate defenses and make the correct reads, and then you also have in the back of your head, well, I need this guy to get this many catches because he's going to be frustrated otherwise or because, you know, someone else told me that he needs to be more involved. It's, it's I would tough agree to with that even though T.O. was magnificent in that Super Bowl on the broken uh, oh, no, no, he was. He, I'm, and, and that year, there weren't nearly as many issues as maybe some other years in Correct. his career, too. But later on, yeah, th- things things got more sideways as the, as the season progressed. So I, I like that mindset. What about some of the guys that he's playing with now? What are some of his thoughts that he's gone through OTAs and now starting minicamp? And this is what the new Saints quarterback had to say about Alvin Kamara. No, me and Alvin have been talking uh, – you know uh, about about certain things and what a what a great guy uh, I just absolutely love him um, great teammate you know great energy about him um, and very explosive you know he's so smooth on film you really just don't know how good he is you know obviously you see the film but then when you get in person he ran a couple routes I remember I looked at Jake today and I was like bro like that's not normal <laughs> you know and you just feel his presence when he's on the field you know we were able to hit him on a couple little routes and things like that and see 
see him move and um, you know he I, I think just being around him just for a little bit you know in the building you people don't really know how smart he is at football you know what he he knows where to say he knows what route to run he knows where to get uh, he knows how to use his help and um, you know that combined with his athletic ability you see why now he's had all that production and so um, yeah we've been we've been talking you know the whole time but uh, it was cool to see him in person uh, for sure and finally we know that D to the low has no issues with his team being featured on hard knocks. Now, this is becoming an issue because all the teams don't want to be on hard knocks. <laughs> We've seen reports where the teams, that, there's like four teams that are qualified to be on hard knocks, and they all have expressed either openly or behind the scenes, we're not interested in being on hard knocks. And we know Dawson says he'd love to see the Saints on hard knocks. Derek Carr has already had this experience being the former Oakland slash Las Vegas Raiders quarterback. And this is what he had to say about his experience being on the HBO documentary series. I, I'll say this. I, I loved my experience because the producers, everybody, they were so great. You know, they would, you know, if I said something or, you know, made an audible or a check and the camera's on me, I'd look at them and I'd be like, yes, they'd give you a thumbs up. They'd walk away like they wouldn't, you know, they weren't you know, so intrusive, they're trying to give secrets away. They're just trying to tell a story, you know, and, uh, you know, let the fans in on what it looks like, even a small picture of what it looks like, you know, and uh, I think they do a great job. So um, I had a great experience um, with their crew. I, I don't know if it's the same crew every time, but if it's the crew or whatever crew we worked with, they were great. And so, um, you know, do, you know, is it my favorite thing to do? No, I, I'd rather there be no cameras, you know, and I just go work and then we go win football games. Um, you know, that's just my personality and what I've kind of grown grown into. Um, but if we have to, we'll make the most of it. He had some enthusiasm there early in his response. And as the answer progressed, he got less and less enthusiastic. At first I was like, oh, that's a ringing endorsement. And then by the end you're like, eh. Well, I wonder if he gave his initial response and then thought about what the rest of the people around him told him they think the response should be like his head coach and maybe he said maybe i should walk this back a little bit it's time time, time to bring it back bring it bring it back bring it back you need to scale that down scale down that enthusiasm oh man we got to take a time out when we return here on rp3 and company u.s open it tees off tomorrow at the los angeles country club there in beverly hills conditions <laughs> man I've been seeing some videos on social media, and it looks absolutely brutal, as a U.S. Open should, by the way. D'Lo and I will talk about that and look ahead at the field. That's coming up next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. The United States Open tees off tomorrow at the Los Angeles Country Club there in Beverly Hills. The conditions of the course, they've I don't know if the conditions are normally that way. 
or if it's just been shaped by the USGA for the U.S. Open. Either way, this is why I love the U.S. Open. This is why it's my favorite. I get the, the romanticism of the Masters. I understand it. You get Jim Nance on the call, right? The Azaleas are in bloom. Amen corner. I get all that. I love the Masters. I watch it every year. But what I enjoy more than anything is watching the world's best golfers golf like I do on a course. Because that's what the U.S. Open does. It beats you down, and when you win a U.S. Open, you have grinded it out. You have battled. You've been pushed beyond your typical talent. You've been pushed to play at a different type of level. Things don't go your way. The course isn't shaped to your particular skill set. It is designed to frustrate you. It is designed to break you. It is designed to make you feel like you don't want to get out of bed the next morning. And that's why I love the U.S. Open. Because when you win it, as physically gifted as you are, it's more about mental strength. It's the ultimate test for me, and that's why I love the U.S. Open, and I can't wait to see what happens starting tomorrow in Los Angeles. No, I'm in full agreement there, and I, I, you know, people get very one side or the other here about course conditions. Now, I guess you can make the argument that sometimes, could you consider it, you know, silly, some of the stuff they do, growing the rough out around the green ridiculously high. Um, There's a couple of 290-yard par threes. It's, it's it's that's interesting. Yeah. Um. Now one of them, you know, got a big kind of downhill slope to it. The other one, I don't know if it's going to play quite as long. It's going to depend on where the tee boxes are and stuff like that. But at the same end, there's a 115 yard that can go down depending on pin placement and tee boxes. That can be as short as 80 yards and is almost an impossible pin location. And Ricky Fowler actually mentioned yesterday, and I don't fully know if he was joking or not, but like that the fact that he would basically, if they put that pin in the front, he's going to lay it up to the right side of the fairway. Uh, short on a par three and chip up and try to make par because there's just no if you get caught in one of those bunkers you're literally looking at bogey or worse correct you're short-sighted so anyway I love all that I love the test of golf some people you know and and I get this this I like watching guys struggle and I mentioned that in the past about why I like college sports more because sometimes mistakes happen and I like watching that I think I like watching guys respond to mistakes and I like you know seeing the 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 lack of certainty and to be honest, some of the tournaments throughout the year at the PGA Tour, when it's, look, when it's these courses and these guys are dialed in and it's fairway, green, putt, birdie, over and over again, that's not my favorite type of golf to watch. Now, Augusta, I don't like comparing because, again, I think it's its own thing and I do like the Masters is my favorite major, but I did have the U.S. Open as second. And, you know, I love seeing guys battle for par because I think in the, in the end, yeah, it's golf's an interesting sport, right? You're playing against the game. You're not playing against other people. Then your scores are up against them, but you're playing the course and you're playing the conditions and you're playing the game. And I Correct. think that mark of even par, although some, you know, obviously guys have gotten to the point where that's not the case. I think that should be something earned, not given. And in in a week in the U, it's maybe the only tournament of the year that's like that. But in the U.S. Open, you have to earn par, and usually. Most of these holes, you're going to walk away from par with a par on a hole and go, that's a good score. That's a win. As opposed to, you know, a lot of courses and tournaments throughout the year, you go, man, that was a birdie opportunity they missed out on if they make par. So I like that change up, yes. And there's going to be some doubles and triples and 
if you get caught in that greenside rough, especially oh. if you if you miss the fairway off the tee, you're already going to be in a little trouble. Well, and miss- here's the and here's the other thing that we found out about the conditions this week, Delo. The fairways, the way they're designed, that they're so fast that you're going to hit it. We're going to see guys that are going to bomb it down the fairway, and they're going to like, I'm safe. And that ball is going to go roll from one side of the fairway all the way to the other into the rough. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, it's going to be hilarious to watch. Now, I think some people are upset, or you know, some people love that. I love it, um, and, and we'll get Kevin Price's take on it coming up in the third hour. But I love the challenge. Uh, the other thing that I uh, I got to, I got a chance by the way they have the new uh, the new golf games out the EA Sports PGA Tour game um, and this isn't a sponsored message but I was playing the game they added LA Country Club yesterday so I was playing the playing the course and um, yeah it's tough it's going to be interesting like I some of the whole that was a cool way for me to kind of see some of the layouts uh, by playing the game that way and some of the some of these. You're going to have decisions, and that's another thing I love about golf courses. I don't like some of these courses where it's like pretty clear, okay, this this is a par four. you got to hit it up the left side of the fairway, give yourself a good angle in. You're going to hit a wedge, try and spin it back to the pin and make birdie. There's different ways to approach some of these holes, and there's going to be decisions like we mentioned. Like Ricky Fowler, I, I think he's pretty serious there. There's a potential where he's going to actually strategically play this completely differently than you'd play most par threes. And other guys are probably going to go right at it, and we'll see who, you know, some guys are probably going to make birdies because of that, but there's different ways to approach well, these holes. And, like and, and the reverse on that, the flip side of that is, yeah, some guys are going to go right at it. But here's the thing. The way the greens are sloped and the way the hole placement's going to be, you're going to think, oh, I'm going to attack the green. I'm going to attack this par three because I'm, I'm going for birdie. And then you're, you're going to possibly see your ball just roll right off the green. And now you don't have a birdie attempt. So it's going to be fascinating. Let's get to some of the favorites here, D'Lo. Scotty Scheffler is your odds-on betting favorite as the U.S. Open returns to the Los Angeles Country Club for the first time in 75 years. He's the world number one. He was also the betting favorite at the Masters and at the PGA Championship, but was unable to win those two majors. But he's still the betting line favorite here. Now, he has a pair of runner-up finishes and major championships since his last victory, including at the event a season ago at the Country Club at Brookline, which Fitzpatrick won. Scheffler's in the mix, as we know. Reigning major champions John Rahm and Brooks Kepka, who won the Masters and the PGA Championship, respectively, are also two of the favorites as well. Rory is getting a lot of money put on him as well he's looking to end his nine-year major drought streak Victor Hovland is looking to have his momentum rolling near his near miss at Oak Hill and dramatic victory at the memorial and then you got a bunch of Cali kids right that are in the mix Patrick Cantlay Xander Shoffley and Ricky Fowler are all there as well as Los Angeles native Max Homa and Colin Marikawa so a lot of the attention is going to be paid to Scotty and and Rom and Kepka, and rightfully so. And Kepka, you feel like is kind of built for the U.S. Open, right? Yes. So I I do like him a lot, but because of the conditions, and here's the thing: these guys aren't this familiar with this course because the Open hasn't been there in 75 years. Right. So if they played it, they may have played it in college or 
had played it just randomly while you know being in LA to do some advertising or, or something like that you know yeah. doing some sponsors so it's going to be interesting to me I know it tees off tomorrow who do you like is it is it the typical guys here Scheffler Rom Kepka Hovland and Rory those are your top five favorites and then Cantlay Homa and Shoffley are the almost favorites and then behind them at 25 to 1 odds JT Spieth Morikawa Cameron Smith Tony Finau and then after that, DJ Cameron Young and Fitzpatrick. Yeah, no, look. there. So, yeah, the Pac-12s was held there a couple of years back. Um, so Max Homa played it, and he talked about kind of having an advantage. He shot in the 60s there a little bit of for an one advantage. of the rounds. Um, no, and, and, well, right. and, and like we mentioned, it was certainly set up a little bit differently for that. But um, I do think some of the California guys are interesting because they've probably been around, you know, not only played that course, but you know, we talked about different types of grass and things that are common in, in areas like California. And so, you know, that was something that Max was asked in the press conference and he mentioned a little bit. But I still go back to the guys that are, yeah, Brooks Kepka. By the way, if you start taking a look at the numbers of majors and, and with Kepka's win at the PGA, and the next major he wins is going to start to put himself in rarefied air. And you're going to start to really get to the point. And, and there's only a few names on those lists, right? Those once you get to the number that he's about to get to with six, number seven, number eight, if you were to get to that point. Um, so that's something to really keep in mind. But Scotty Scheffler is, and, and our guy Chris from Atlanta just texted me and said, it's got to be Scotty. If he putts well enough, he's going to win the tournament. I I just, it's you just never know who's going to find their way into trouble. at, a, at a, And you can take yourself, you know, in the old adage, you can't win the tournament on Thursday, but you can lose it. I think that really reigns true in a situation like this, because if you get yourself into some trouble early, and this golf course starts to eat you up, and you're six, seven over. Which, like again, guys are going to be six, seven over par. Like that will easily happen. You're in trouble, and you're not. You know, it's not a course where there's going to be a whole lot of birdies out there to go dig yourself out of trouble. So, I think that's important to think about. Another storyline, by the way, he's not going to be a favorite, and I certainly wouldn't expect him to be in contention. But he played well at Augusta. Phil Mickelson looking for the career Grand Slam. It's eluded him for so long, and that's he gets true. another chance at it. But, um, you know, I, I don't know if his game's built to to handle a beast like this either at this point. You, you look at the guys above Brooks, and I know we have a timeout coming up. He sits right now at five, which is tied for 15th most all-time for uh, men's majors uh, with Seve and Byron Nelson, by the way, just a couple of names. Phil's above him at six, so is Nick Faldo, Lee Trevino, then – Arnie is at seven, Sam Sneed, Bobby Jones as well. Then it's Tom Watson at eight, Gary Player, Ben Hogan at nine. Then you get to Walter Hagen with 11, Tiger at 15, and of course, the Bear at 18. So Kepka, you're right. He can then distinguish himself and jump all the way up to tied for 12th all time. And he's done it at such a clip early in his career it's absolutely phenomenal so we got to take a timeout. when we return we'll close out hour number two we'll take your phone calls as well right here on the game this is rp3 and company on the game 1037 lafayette and 1041 lake charles southwest louisiana's sports station your home for the lsu tigers and houston astros a recent survey discovered that game listeners prefer our station than going to the dentist take that dental hygiene 
This is the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Oh, let's quickly head out to the hotline. Welcome on Jamie, a.k.a. Mr. Green, who's been patiently waiting. Brother, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning, Mr. Third. couple of things. Number one, first of all, happy birthday to Miss Tina. 29 looks good. Ah, you married up. And I can you. say that because I married up to you, so I recognize it. <laughs> That's right, buddy. Thank you. <laughs> um, second of all, real quick, congratulations to the Golden Knights. Thank God they won because if the Bolts can't win the Stanley Cup, at least the Panthers can lose it. There it is. There it is. And there's our hockey talk for the day. Thank you, Jamie. There's your hockey talk for the day. I know y'all are looking forward to it. Um, and finally, for the poll question of the day, and not to get somber, but uh, this is going to be the first Father's Day in about 30 years that I'm not grilling a steak from a Pops. So uh, what we're going to do this year is we're going to go to one of his favorite restaurants and enjoy a, a nice dinner, uh, honor him, remember him, and uh, you know, have a good time. I'm kind of looking forward to it because this time of year, it's hot as hell outside. I don't feel like grilling a steak. <laughs> But your pop would appreciate what you're doing, buddy. Thank you for sharing that. Enjoy the week. Appreciate it. Y'all have a good one. Hey, I enjoy the Father's Day weekend, but I've lost both of my dads, right? So I uh, lost my old man in 2020-12 and then lost my dad, technically my stepfather, but the man I first heard is my dad. It'll be two years ago this November. So it is uh, can be a bit of a somber time. But you can still honor your pops like Jamie's going to do. Keep those votes coming on the poll question of the day. What's your favorite Father's Day meal? Right now, 51% of you say steak dinner. 37% say barbecue. 7% say other. And 5% say seafood. Keep those votes coming. Keep those comments coming. We'll share them throughout the remainder of today's show. Hour two in the books. How are we going to kick off hour number three? How about talking with Kevin Price at PGATour.com? Get that U.S. Open preview. That's next right here on The Game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Our number three has arrived here on RP3 and Company. We'll talk more about the College World Series, which will begin on Friday with LSU baseball legend, college baseball Hall of Famer, Louisiana Sports Hall of Famer, and now a man who works for the SEC Network as an analyst. Todd Walker will join us half an hour from right now, so you got to make sure to tune in for that. Don't forget to also vote on our poll question of the day. It's Wednesday, which means it's our foodie poll question of the week. Father's Day is Sunday. What you going with? What's your go-to? What's your favorite Father's Day meal, fellas? Is it a steak dinner? Is it barbecue? Is it seafood? Or is it other? Go vote. Leave those comments on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll make sure to share them throughout the remainder of today's show. But we're going to kick off hour number three 
here of RP3 and Company as we broadcast live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette by Talking U.S. Open with a man who covers the PGA Tour for PGATour.com. Our old friend Kevin Price joins us now. Kevin, good morning to you, brother. How are you, my friend? Good morning, RP3. U.S. Open week, always great. Gotta say, it's my favorite major just growing up, the, you know, underdog stories and going through final qualifying and I love going to cover those final qualifying sites too. So all, always great to be U.S. Open week. And it's my favorite major uh, as well because it is the major that humbles all the golfers. <laughs> it makes them. <laughs> yep. So let's, yep. let, let's start true. there because <laughs> I've seen the videos on social media, uh, the fairways, the greens, you drop a ball and it goes about 10 miles per hour off into the rough this is the first time in 75 years that the los angeles country club is hosting the u.s open they've obviously modified the course to make it a u.s open type of challenge uh what about the course can we expect uh high numbers like we typically do at u.s opens so it's interesting um from what kind of they're saying earlier in the week it's definitely going to be that traditional u.s open thick rough kind of Deep bunkering, severe penalties. There's going to be a lot of slopes in the fairways that could kind of kick a ball from a decent shot into the rough. But the kind of part that could counter that a little bit is there's going to be a lot of wedges, a lot of kind of short par fours, and a lot of scoring opportunities along the way. So, look, as they're saying, like there might be a few more birdies than normal on the cards for the U.S. Open, but also potential for a few more big numbers. There's a couple super long par threes. I think number seven can play up to like 290. Number 11 is right up there as well in some super long par fours. So kind of a lot of wedges and a lot of long irons into the green. So a lot of variance. And when all said and done, the week began, it was a little soft. I know Max Homo was talking yesterday. It felt like he was playing with Justin Thomas and it felt like he could have shot in the low 60s yesterday. But as the week goes on, it traditionally gets firmer and faster. And once that happens, there's plenty of tricky holes and plenty of big numbers on the board. So I'd say maybe a little lower than normal, but would still be surprised if it gets too far into double digits or to double digits at all. Now there's been a lot made about the short two par threes that are going to be on the course under 300 yards for each of those. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see Kevin, how guys approach that. Are some going to say, Hey, I'm just going to track, to try to attack the pin, but if you overshoot or you attack it too much, you could find your ball rolling off the green into the rough. So how do you think those two par threes in particular are going to play? <laughs> With um, I know number six, the short par four that has drawn comparison to number 10 at nearby Riviera, which hosts um, the Genesis every year. It was funny, John Rahm, it, it seems like no one has really any idea how to play that hole, which is fascinating because normally – there's kind of like a consensus on how a hole should be played, whether to attack or lay up or where to play it. And it seemed like Rom kind of talked himself through his answer in the presser from saying like it's a it's a go for it situation to being like yeah I'll probably lay up in between Morikawa and Homa and Cantley and everyone coming in. There's all sorts of different takes on yeah I'll go for it every day or yeah I'll lay up every day. So when you get a hole like that that people aren't really sure what to do, it's going to be super cool to see and so intriguing and speaking of short holes number 15 the par three 
can play as short as 78 yards. It's 124 on the card, and the green is kind of sprawling, and the um, right-hand portion of the green is probably 8 yards, 10 yards wide with deep bunker long, deep bunker short. Ricky Fowler was talking. He might even lay up into the fairway short right of it on an 80-yard hole, so a hole like that is super fascinating too. So the, the quirks of this course and the fact that it's never really been seen in this presentation in the modern era. Had the Walker Cup in 2017, U.S. versus Europe, and I had um, the Pac-12 championship 10 years ago in 2013 where Max Homa actually shot a first-round 61 and won that individual title. So some of the guys kind of have that experience. Ron was there for the Pac-12. Scotty Scheffler was there for the Walker Cup. So some of the guys know the course, but besides those two events, pretty much a lot of guys are coming in blind. And for fans, it makes it great as well and us covering it just to see a course unfold that we don't really know much about well kevin one aspect that this u.s open might not actually have is that the fierce weather conditions because it is taking place in beautiful los angeles so i haven't checked but i'm guessing weather conditions are going to be pretty favorable for these golfers Mm-hmm. absolutely yeah they're not expecting i know this time they might get a little of that marine layer in the morning which i know sometimes when it's up in san francisco can prove problematic, but not really expecting any sort of delay, just a little bit of kind of thick air that might make the ball travel a little bit shorter for the first maybe hour, hour and a half of play, if that at all. So might kind of soften it up for a couple of the early groups. But from there, just should be expected to be one of those traditional U.S. Open tests that as the week goes on, it gets firmer and firmer. I know guys saying even just from getting in, some of the guys who got in over the weekend to getting to Tuesday just being firmer and bouncier and making it harder to control your ball. And that's a lot of what the U.S. Open test is all about. It requires you to be so dialed in with your distances and also be very disciplined in the mind when being aggressive can lead to a quick double. So the, the weather being kind of not a factor should lead into it becoming more and more of a traditional U.S. Open by Saturday and Sunday. Let's get into the field a little bit here. Of course, you know, Scotty Scheffler is a guy who goes to the top of everybody's boards when we get to these big tournaments. Even though he hasn't won one this year, we figure he's right on the cusp and he's been playing so well and so consistently. Of course, Brooks Kepka's been right there, could have won the Masters, then did back it up and win the PGA Championship, and John Rahm, who got the Masters done. Who does this course set up well for, and who do you like within those three and then maybe outside of that group? It's, it's hard to go against. Kepka, it's so I Scheffler has had such an amazing year strokes gained off the tee tee to green kind of historic I know a couple weeks ago Memorial he gained like 18 or 20 strokes on the field off the tee which is just wild and his, his putting has been kind of his bugaboo lately he's been working with different putters different techniques on the practice green earlier this week and it, it's funny that you mentioned um Scheffler and Kepka. I mean it's obviously those are they go to the top of the board but a, a friend was asking me the same question yesterday and I was kind of like struggling to come up with who I would pick among them so I, I think I kind of have to go Kepka just because when you don't pick Kepka and then he wins you look kind of foolish I guess and that's just what he wants like he's just got he's taken this Wild. I mean, obviously, he's a great athlete and a great player, and he's able to manifest these flights and chips on his shoulder 
So I don't I don't want to put anything out in the universe to go against that. So for that kind of reverse psychology, I'll say Kepka. And then in terms of who it might, um, as much as I would love to say Scheffler, and um, his putting just, I can't pick him knowing that his putting is such a kind of struggle at this point. And then in general, I think the course should suit good drivers of the golf ball with all these long irons into the greens. It seems like the shorter hitters who kind of are a little off kilter, it's going to be a lot of layups, a lot of wedges in for their third and just being kind of the power game that you saw a couple years ago at winged foot with Bryson just kind of bludgeoning the course into being so far down the fairway that even when he was in the rough, he was still easily able to get it up to the green. And on some of those holes, that'll suit the longer hitters well. So that being said, a guy like Cameron Young, I know he didn't have his best stuff at the PGA Championship, but that was in his home state of New York, might have had kind of just too much going on and a good experience for him. So I'll pick him again. A little further down the board, a guy like Keith Mitchell, who's just such a great top three on tour in drivers of the ball. And then it's funny, like Cantley, he isn't he hasn't really had the track record in majors that he's been looking for, but he's from LA, played at UCLA, has been around that course a little bit. I got a sneaking suspicion that this could be a nice week for Patrick Cantley to have a good week and contend to get his first major. We're talking with Kevin Price of PGATour.com. He joins us here as we preview the U.S. Open, which tees off tomorrow. Kevin, I want to ask you about two guys that know what it takes to win a major championship, but it's it's been a little while, and we'll start with Rory. It looked like he was going to win the RBC Canadian Open, and uh, he, he had a Sunday that he'd like to maybe forget a little bit. We know the major drought streak is up to nine years what type of chance do you give Rory especially um all the off the course stuff that he's had to answer and deal with since the merger was announced what kind of chance do you give him to end that major drought streak this week it's interesting he you know you feel like with Rory you can get a switch to flip and the way he plays and the way he drives the ball and you know, when I was just going through names there, I would have loved to have said Rory, but you just got to feel with, you know, just the circumstances. There's a lot of weight on him. He he took his press conference. He decided to opt out of it yesterday, just not wanting to kind of have that, I guess, burden, scrutiny, stress. And so in that sense, he's definitely focusing on his game pretty hard, you could imagine. He didn't um, defend his Canadian Open title for the second time, but he was right there and he's had some he played solid at the PGA championship which was a nice rally after missing the cut at the masters and i think it would be as much as i would love to say i expect rory to be up there this week i'm kind of a little skeptical i guess of saying that just because of everything that's happened and kind of his just so much he's taken on over the last year and it's just got a you know, wear on someone, I guess, at, at some point. But he has that switch, and once the game, once you get inside the ropes, all bets are off. If if his wedge game was a little cleaner, I, I walked with him a bit during the final round at the PGA, and it's the same type of thing. He birdies one, you think he's about to get on this run, and 
I just have the striking image of a flip wedge into the second hole, 90 yards or so that he kind of pushed to the right of the green, short side of the only place he really couldn't be, and made a bogey in from there. You just could kind of tell he was a little too far back. And with Rory's talent, he can kind of just finish 10th in his sleep. But to be up there to contend for the title could be asking a lot. But it's Rory, so you never know. Uh, the second guy I wanted to ask you about was Jordan Spieth. Now, he won the U.S. Open, of course, in 2015 by a single stroke over DJ. And they're at Chambers Bay in Washington. Uh, he's hitting the ball straighter off the tee, which has been a problem of his in the recent uh, years. And we know his short game is one of the best on tour. At a U.S. Open, you need to have an excellent short game. Do you like Jordan Spieth's chances this week in L.A.? It's interesting. Is it's that you think back to Spieth and his magic from the start of his career when he was kind of invincible, kind of the way that Scheffler had that run for a little bit recently. And I know Spieth has been kind of banged up a little bit recently. He had to withdraw in Dallas, which I know killed him being from there. Not in. He's come back and he's, you know, been fine. He's had some good. Definitely, his driving has been better in recent months. I don't know. Again, he's a guy that you can't having known what it takes to win a major and winning three majors, and kind of once that crowd gets behind him, he. I'm just worried that I guess he doesn't have quite enough length, and his driver can still be a little bit of a high wire at times as much as it has been better that I, I could see some holes playing pretty long for him, just playing out of the rough and a lot of layups and a lot of kind of easy bogeys there. So not that I'm expecting him to miss the cutter of the bad week or anything, but I'd foresee him somewhere kind of in that, I guess, 15th to 25th range this week would be my instinct for speed. Kevin, we'll get you out of here with this. Now that everything, the dust has settled with the PGA Tour and Live and everything else, and we're going to have a whole new professional world of golf moving forward, you know, the sense I get from a lot of the golfers, comments made by John Rahm or Kepka, whoever it may be on both sides of the fence, there seems to be a kind of a sense of relief now where it's like, okay, this is what's happening and we can just focus in on golf instead of talking about politics or talking about deals being done behind the scenes and financial ramifications and everything. Is that the impression you're getting from the, the golfers on tours that they just want to move forward and just focus on playing golf? Mm-hmm. I, I would say it's kind of accepting that, you know, in broad strokes, the you know policy board is going to, kind of work on some of those bigger decisions and to not like obviously players always have input at various levels but at the end of the day like you said they the thing they can control is playing and putting themselves themselves in best position to succeed on the course and win and chase those titles and you know with the success everything else around it comes you know you win tour events you win majors kind of you build up your legacy and that's the beauty of the platform of the PGA tour. And I think definitely this week, like no one is wanting to get kind of as evidenced by Rory deciding not even to do, not even or declining a presser. Like 
guys aren't saying much around that. They're easier to just deflect questions and kind of, you know, happily talk about the golf questions. So I would tend to agree it's kind of full steam ahead, you know, on the course, kind of bear down and prepare, especially this week at the U.S. Open more than ever. Like, if you're spending energy on other things, um, it's going to take away from the task at hand when, especially a new course, you need to be dialed in at every level, kind of with your game plan on every hole to be ready to rumble, as they say. So, yeah, overall, obviously, every player is different and everyone approaches stuff a little different and there's different circumstances around this for, for everyone. But I'd say overall, I would agree. Kevin, appreciate your time as always, brother. Thank you so much. Keep up the tremendous work you're doing at PGATour.com, my friend. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you guys for having me on. Always appreciate it. Enjoy the U.S. Open. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. A recent survey discovered that game listeners prefer our station over watching a mandated webinar at work. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming to this exciting meeting today to discuss... Take that, productivity in the workplace. This is The Game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Oh, the Houston Astros got themselves a win last night. Taking down the Washington Nationals 5-1. Four solo home runs. Abreu hit a milestone himself. So did Jose Altuve. And Hunter Brown was very good. Seven scoreless innings from him. Good bounce back performance by him. They'll look to make it two in a row at home at Minute Maid against the Washington Nationals. Tonight, when they take the field, once again, Astro launch will begin at 6.40. First pitch is set at 7.10, and you can listen to all the exciting action live right here on The Game, your home for Houston Astros baseball in southwest Louisiana. We discussed that earlier on today's show. We also touched on the great scene in Oakland for the athletics, in particular for their fans. They decided to do a reversal boycott. On the day that the Nevada state legislator approved hundreds of millions of dollars in financing to help build a state-of-the-art ballpark there off the Las Vegas Strip for a Major League Baseball team for the athletics essentially to relocate, the fans, who have been treated like a dumpster fire by the ownership of the Oakland Athletics, a team that won 97 games in 2019 and made it back to the playoffs in 2020. Yet ownership has decided to not make improvements to the stadium, has decided to gut the team, trade away their best players, and handcuff Billy Bean from even doing Moneyball as they now have the lowest payroll in Major League Baseball and have opted to try to leave town. I expressed my thoughts on this, that... This is the type of stuff that's allowed to happen in Major League Baseball because of the revenue sharing that goes on. And because owners can make money without doing anything with their teams. They can jack up ticket prices. They can gut their own team. They can have facilities that are the worst in baseball, not only for the players, but for the fans. 
and they can be a neglectful landlord and still make money is a serious problem. And it's one that's been a longstanding serious problem in Major League Baseball ever since revenue sharing became a big thing where teams like the Astros and the Braves and the Yankees and the Dodgers and others invest in their teams. Others are allowed to not do so. And then they blame it on the local municipality or they blame it on the fan base for why they're not drawing when they are not doing anything in their power at all to invest in their team and make them a winning franchise and then they'll find somebody else to pony up the money to build them a fancy ballpark and guess what las vegas do you think that this ownership group is going to be committed to putting a winning product on the field they're not they haven't been not to mention the fact that they totally neglect doing anything in the community once again neglectful owners being rewarded by moving their franchises and it's a story as old as time and it's still one that upsets me but twenty-eight thousand fans show up they wear the t-shirts they do the chance sell the team and they supported their team and they showed out and made a big party of it last night at the oakland coliseum so it was nice to see it was also nice to see that hogan harris the former stm cougar and Louisiana Raging Cajun caught himself his second win. Tilo, he came in there, gave him seven strong innings, only gave up four hits, one earned run, no walks, two Ks, threw 84 pitches, came in in relief after one inning, and got himself his second win of the season as the A's have won yet again for the seventh straight time. Yeah, they're using... Uh... It's like the opener role, I guess, is what they're doing, and then giving him the length in the middle there, and he's been great. So, I mean, that first outing was awful, and it's a long, distant memory now. He went back down to AAA for a little bit, came back up with a new mindset, and he's been great. So that's awesome to see. And, you know, again, th- this opportunity is, is unique in that Oakland is um, in a different spot roster-wise than most teams in the league, but right now they're winning, and he's a part of it, and that's fun. And, um, you know, I – I'd imagine he's going to continue to pitch as long as he's pitching like this. I think they're going to keep him out there, and that should be uh, – it's an opportunity for a guy who, you know, has a chance to maybe do something here. Earn Correct. himself some co- a contract, um, you know, bigger than the one he has, and and we'll see. Of course, you know, free agency rules in MLB are complicated, but, um, you know, once you're on, on, in the show on a roster, it makes it a lot easier for teams to, to bring you back to it, especially the way that, um, you know, options and things like that are used. So that's good for him. Good for him. And Jace Peterson, the uh, Moss Bluff native and former McNeese Cowboy, uh, he went 0 for 2 in last night's game, but he did get on the base pass due to a walk and scored a run, helping them to that 2-1 victory over the Tampa Bay Rays. That's right. The worst team in baseball has now beat the best team in baseball back-to-back nights. Poll question of the day. What's your favorite Father's Day meal? Father's Day is Sunday. Right now, 50% of you say steak dinner, 36% of you say barbecue, 7% say seafood, and another 7% say other. B-Rad says, if we were to do a Father's Day meal, it would probably be a barbecue on a Saturday. Looking forward to the 2024 schedule reveal tonight. Can't wait to see who LSU, Texas, and Oklahoma get. That's right. That will be unveiled tonight around 6 o'clock. Darren on the Twitter says, steak and shrimp. That's his jam for Father's Day. Salty Steve says, family tradition to have a fish fry with my dad, my kids, and my grandkids. I'm so blessed to have them in my life. Happy Father's Day to all, and go Tigers. See, you were worried about the comments, and they have been nothing but stellar 
by the listeners today, d Outstanding. Outstanding. Keep that up. Keep those votes coming in as well. we got to take a time out. When we return, we're going to preview the College World Series with the LSU baseball legend, College Baseball Hall of Famer and Louisiana Sports Hall of Famer Todd Walker joins us next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on The Game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. The College World Series begins on Friday. First game is going to be TCU versus Oral Roberts. The LSU Tigers, of course, will be taking on those Tennessee Volunteers. That'll be on Saturday night. You can listen to that game right here live on the game. You're home for LSU Athletics in southwest Louisiana. To give us some perspective on what it takes to win in Omaha, and how much of a grind it is, and also give his thoughts on who he likes to make runs there in Omaha at the College World Series as a man who knows it extremely well. Joining us now is the LSU baseball legend, National College Baseball Hall of Famer, Louisiana Sports Hall of Famer, and the man who was the College World Series most outstanding player in 1993 for the LSU Tigers. Todd Walker joins us now. Todd, good morning, brother. Thank you for making the time, bud. How are you? Good morning. Everything's great. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great. So let's let's start off with, I know you played in an era where the venue was different. It was the old Rosenblatt Stadium, and now they play in a different park. But what's the biggest thing to be able to go to Omaha and to be able to win the national title? Because it's an absolute grind. It lasts nearly two weeks. It's not the same format as a regional or super regional. It takes longer. It's a different mindset. What's the big key for teams going to Omaha this week to be able to to make it through and to win a title? Pitching strength and pitching depth. That, uh, to me, is baseball is all who you got on the mound. And so, for instance, LSU in game one has an advantage over probably anybody else uh, in the field because they've got the best pitcher in the country. Uh, and then after that, you know, there's going to be some good ones up there, though. You know, I mean, uh, that Rhett Louder for Wake Forest, I mean, sub-2 ERA, ridiculous. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him throw. Um, but it's all pitching. You know, you mentioned it's all pitching, and, and something interesting has happened with the LSU Tigers is that Skeens is absolutely great. He's the best pitcher in the country. He's probably even going to be maybe the number one overall pick in the amateur draft coming up. And Ty Floyd has done a nice job as well behind him. But the bullpen and the rest of the pitching was a big question mark. But since the SEC tournament, Todd, Jay has seemingly figured out who he trusts. Thatcher Hurd. The freshman, Gavin Guidry out of Barb High School. He's been phenomenal. Ackenhausen and Cooper. He's figured out which guys he really trusts. Do you expect that to be the same thing in Omaha, or is he going to have to depend on some of those other guys that were struggling or maybe hasn't pitched as much? 
No, that's generally how it works. You got your two or three starters, depending on what team you're talking about, and then you got your two or three bullpen arms that you depend and rely upon and trust, to your point. And that's who you roll with. Uh, Griffin Herring's done a pretty nice job for him, too. So the bullpen has been good. It's been good, you know, and uh, that's a step up from what we've seen all year long. Ty Floyd gives them a chance to win. He's undefeated. So even if he goes three, it's not like he's given up eight runs, you know, and then hands it over and, and LSU's, you know, in a bind. Ty Floyd's good. It's just he's just not giving them depth. And when you can get length, you know, uh, seven innings from Ty Floyd, uh, it's almost an automatic that LSU wins. But he's just not doing that. But he does give them a chance when he leaves the game. And so the bullpen has to pick those games up in addition to game three. Uh, and that's where it gets a little, you know, uncertain, I guess is the best word. For LSU, but uh, you're right. I mean, the bullpen, what Hurt had 12 strikeouts the other day, gave up the four runs. Um, they're good. But, you know, we're going to find out, uh, you know, with the lights on at Charles Schwab Stadium and, and Omaha, a lot of these guys have not been there. In fact, none of them have. And it's a, it's a whole different experience, man. First time I was in Rosenblatt, I went 0 for 8. I mean, I, so I spun myself in the ground. I think you asked, like, what does it take? And for me, it was controlling my heartbeat. You know, I was so excited. You can't use that emotion. In baseball, it's kind of like golf. You got to stay under control. You mentioned, you know, none of these guys have been here, but their skipper has. And Jay Johnson was there at Arizona. How much is that experience going to help with him getting this year's LSU team prepared to make a run in Omaha? I think that's what made Skip Berman so great. He did a few things that I've never even heard or seen before or since. One was I think you might have heard this story. We got in a dark room, and everybody laid on the floor, and you had to visualize what you did and what you did best, you know. And, again, not that it – again, I had to figure it out. I was 0 for 8, but I ended up catching on the last three games. But I, I think even though if it initially doesn't work, uh, it, it worked as a whole and for as a team. And we hadn't been there in 1993. I've never been there, and we won it. So it's, it's possible, you know, to get it done. Uh, in a new environment for these kids. Um, and they're, they're, the offense is one of the best in the country, but you can also say the same for Virginia and Florida. Uh, Oral Roberts is really doing a nice job. they got a kid on Oral Roberts' team with a 46-game hitting streak, Jonah Cox. Crazy. So there's some great storylines coming in, but ultimately for LSU, you're right. Jay Johnson's been there a couple times with Arizona. Um, he knows what to expect, and that can help. Well, Todd, we, we talked a little bit about the differences between Rosenblatt and the new TD Ameritrade. But what is the overall kind of difference that that ballpark is going to make, especially with how big it can play? Some of these teams, specifically Wake Forest, a couple of teams that have pretty small parks. Is that going to change the way anybody's able to approach the game, do you think? I think so, and that's what was happening. Remember, and by the way, you're going to get a letter from uh, Charles Schwab because it's yep. Charles no, Schwab. I knew it when now. I said I just, it. I just, uh, <laughs> I just found that out <laughs> the hard way. Uh, but, but up in, up in Omaha, let's just say that up in Omaha, uh, remember about 10, well, it wasn't even 10 years ago. It was probably five years ago. The ball wasn't going anywhere. And so it made these powerful teams turn into these small ball teams and they had to change their identity. And then you really had an emphasis on your pitchers and, and how dominant they were. If they, if they weren't very dominant, then you got beat just, you know, meaning not a lot of strikeouts, you know, now I think it's a little more fair. But it still plays big, and the environment's going to play big. And But I think the main key for me would be um, 
not changing your identity, like not doing anything different than what you did to get there. And I don't see that happening with LSU. I don't see Jay Johnson all of a sudden deciding to bunt in the first inning when they get a guy on, that type of thing. Um, so I think they're going to be fine. But they've got to win that game one with Paul Skeens. You lose that one, uh, you know, it, it gets it's good. like anybody else, I'm sure, but it gets really rough. Well, specifically on LSU's side of the bracket here, you already mentioned Rhett Louder and Wake Forest. They seem to be maybe the deepest pitching staff in the country. Um, but what are the storylines and kind of the things you're looking at as far as LSU's opportunity to get out of this side where you have just four teams, LSU, uh, Tennessee, Wake Forest, and uh, Stanford? Yeah, Stanford's an interesting story. Y'all saw that game the other night. My goodness, how to get how to get to Omaha, you know, hit it straight up in the air and nobody see it. Um, drops in in Texas and and Stanford gets the chance to go. I mean, uh, Quinn Quinn Matthews complete game the other night threw 153 pitches or whatever he threw the uh, 16 strikeouts. So they've got a few nice parts. Braden Montgomery for uh, Stanford's a real dude. Um, Wake Forest clearly the number one team in the country. You guys know the stat. Not not one number one team has won in Omaha in 22 years. Not one. And that's a crazy stat considering you're talking about the best team in the country. Wakes that team coming in. Can they break the Can they break the streak? You know, Tom Walter in his 14th year has done a nice job there. I mean, Wake hits 309 as a team. They got 129 home runs. So, I mean, Wake does everything well. It's crazy. But that's why we play the game because baseball is just strange sometimes. You guys know that. Um, I think it's big for Tennessee to decide who they're going to match up against Paul Skeens. I feel like Chase Dolander's their dude. Uh, even though they really don't have an ace, Drew Beam, Chase Dolander, and uh, Andrew Lindsay have been really good for them this year, but not one is really better than the other, although Dolander's supposed to be the second pitcher picked out of college behind Paul Skeens in the MLB draft next month. So I feel like Dolander can match Skeens, and that's why I say it's big for LSU to win that first game because if they don't, Tennessee's so loaded with their pitching staff. I mean, the, the bullpen's crazy. Tony Vitelli will tell you they've got six SEC starters on that staff, you know, with Seth Halverson and a few others that they actually use out of the pen. But Tennessee's loaded. Uh, and if, if Tennessee wins game one against LSU, they, they, they're, they're primed to, to get this thing done. But, um, and there's great stories with you see, you've seen the TCU scores. I mean, they're playing football out there. Every time they show up, they score 12 runs, you know. Um, ridiculous what Kirk Silos has done for that group. 102 runs in the last nine games for TCU. Oral Roberts, 51 wins. Florida, Virginia, two of the best offenses in the country uh, going up against each other. Uh, so there's some really nice storylines, uh, you know, for this. And the craziest one is LSU hasn't been there since 17. I don't, I don't think I even knew that until you look at it, you know. They haven't even been to Omaha in, what is that, six years, seven years? Crazy. We're talking with the LSU baseball legend, Louisiana Sports Hall of Famer, National College Baseball Hall of Famer, Todd Walker. He joins us here. He does work for the SEC Network. He gets to talk baseball for a living these days. Todd, I'm glad you brought up the other part of the bracket because that's where I want to steer the conversation to. Virginia feels like the team that no one's talking about entering this College World Series, and this is a team that won the title in 2015, finished as runner-up in 2014, and they were just in the College World Series back in 2021. So this is a good program. What makes the Cavaliers so good? Well, number one, they've got the, the, the best batting average in the country as a team, 335. So it's hard to always compare conferences and in, in parts of the country. Does 335 translate to 335 in the SEC? I would, you know, Your initial reaction would be to say no. 
but who knows? Either way, they're leading the country. You know, they, they as a team, they get on base 43% of the time. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, that's Brian O'Connor you talked about and what the, 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 you know, he's been to Omaha a few times. That run they made in 14 15, like you mentioned, he's been there 20 years. He's at 450 win season. So I don't feel like the manager makes a ton of difference in the big leagues because you just roll your, your, your studs out there. College is different. I think the coach really does make a difference, kind of like the stories I was telling with Skip Bergman and what he tells you and how he makes you feel, how he sets the lineup up, you know, all this, this probably psychology stuff. That makes a difference to young kids, 18-, 19-year-old kids. Um, they've got a good little uh, starting rotation, too, with Brian Edgington and Connolly Early and Nick Parker, Jack O'Connor. They've got some really nice pieces. But Florida on the other side, you know you know about their offense. Josh Rivera, Jack Caglione, you know, if he's not leading the country in home runs, he's second or third by now. Wyatt Lankford, B.T. Ryapel, who went nuts in the SEC tournament. That one through five for Florida in that lineup is just sick, and then they've got a lot of good arms to go along with it with Sproat and Waldrop and Brandon Neely you know, on the back end of those games. So that Virginia-Florida game is going to be a monster, and it's going to be fun to watch. Just two big power offenses to go along with you know, the pitching staff. It almost feels like that is the championship game between Virginia and Florida. Todd, we'll get you out of here with this. Only got about a minute left, but uh, who do you like? to win the national championship and who do you uh, who's your dark horse well oral roberts would be the dark horse i mean uh, they're, they're trying to do what coastal carolina did in 2016 a mid-major to win this thing and it's even harder now i thought the coastal story in 16 was incredible you know who they ran through as a mid-major and now for oral roberts to even have a chance but they've got 51 wins they've got nice pieces of their group so oral roberts would be the dark horse of course and i've picked tennessee middle of the year i'm sticking with them I think the big key for Tennessee clearly is to get through Paul Skeen. If they can do that, then I think Tennessee wins it. But and I, and I still think they will because Paul Skeen throws game one and wins. Now, now you've got no Paul Skeens and you got to win two or three games. So it'll be interesting for LSU. But I think Tennessee is so loaded uh, on the staff. So back to your original question: What does it take? Pitching uh, and pitching depth. You know, and I feel like Tennessee's got as, as good or, or better than anybody else in the field. Todd, always appreciate your time, brother. Thank you so much for your insight. Enjoy the College World Series, my friend. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, guys. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. There are some hosts that talk like they know everything, but you don't have to worry about our guy, RP3. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. That's because he never knows what he's talking about. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Back to the show in the know. RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Oh, wrapping up today's show. I want to take a moment to thank our guest, Kevin Price from PGATour.com, helping us preview the U.S. Open, which tees off tomorrow. I want to thank Todd Walker, LSU baseball legend, and in the College Baseball Hall of Fame, Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame, LSU Hall of Fame. For my money, the best baseball player to play at LSU. I know people keep telling me Dylan Cruz is that guy. I get it. I get it. 
but for me, it's still Todd Walker. We'll see if Dylan Cruz can help LSU make a run and surpass him as the the best in program history. Foodie poll question of the week is always on Wednesday. It's our poll question of the day. Final results from that. What is your favorite Father's Day meal? 51% of you said went with steak dinner. 36% say barbecue. 7% say seafood. And 6% of you say other. Thanks to all who voted on the poll question of the day. Thanks to all of you who left your comments. A slew of great comments today on the foodie poll question of the day. Thank you for making that happen. I can't wait to watch all the action at Charles Schwab Field and get the name correct the rest of the way. <laughs> you made Tom Walker laugh. No, it's going to be fun. That's a win. That's going to do it for today's show. We'll be back on tomorrow, 6 to 9. But until then, be kind out there. Be safe. And I'm sorry, be safe and be kind to one another. Kevin Foote in Footnotes is up next on a glorious Wednesday edition of that show right here on The Game.